Welcome to Shambhala Publications Audio. You're about to listen in on a conversation between Lee Brasington and the entire staff of Shambhala Publications. Lee is the author of Right Concentration, A Practical Guide to the Jhanas, and is the editor of the newly released The Path of Peace, A Buddhist Guide to Cultivating Loving-Kindness, based on talks of his teacher, the Venerable Ayakema. You will hear Lee discuss Ayakema and her life, and having her as a teacher. He then discusses metta, or loving-kindness meditation, answers some questions about it, including how it relates to samatha, vipassana, and the path to enlightenment. He then leads a guided meditation taught to him by Ayakema. We conclude with a short clip from the audiobook edition of A Path to Peace. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, welcome everyone. We have Lee Brasington here with us today. Some of you might already know Lee. Um, but just to give a really short introduction, uh, Lee's been a Buddhist practitioner since 1985, when he became a student of the late German-Jewish Theravada nun Ayakema. From our books, he's the author of Right Concentration, and more recently, he was the editor of Path to Peace, which is a collection of oral teachings from Ayakema uh, on cultivating metta, or loving-kindness. So today, I believe, he's going to talk a bit about the origins of the book Path to Peace, and hopefully guide us through a nice meta meditation. Um, so without further ado, I'll let you take it away, Lee. Uh, thank you. So I came out, in the Reader's Digest, they had this series, my most unforgettable character. Well, Ayakema was my most unforgettable character. She was a force of nature. Um, sometimes they talk about, you know, someone they broke the mold after they made that person well uh, there was no mold for ayakema she was hand carved she was an extremely unique individual uh escaping from the nazis at age 15 on one of the kinder transports going to scotland and joining her parents who had escaped to shanghai by taking a freighter a japanese freighter in 1941 before pearl harbor from the uk to shanghai around Africa and India and so forth. Uh, really, really interesting person. Um, she and her husband drove from Pakistan to London in the 60s in their Land Rover with their son, and then turned around and drove back to India, which is where she first encountered Hindu meditation. And I think it was about a half a dozen years later, she one of her neighbors came to her and said uh, would you like to hear a talk by a buddhist monk and she went to that talk and she knew she was home she'd been doing her hindu meditation but never really relating to it and uh, when she met venerable kantipalo she knew she was home and eventually she began teaching and eventually she became a nun now in Sri Lanka at that time, you could only get 10 precepts if you were female, but that wasn't gonna stop Ayakema. She came back to the US where her daughter was living near San Diego and went to the Chan temple in LA and got full ordination. Uh, so she became a fully ordained Theravadan nun, uh, one of the first ones in a thousand years. And since then she's encouraged many other women to do the same thing and i think there are over a thousand fully ordained nuns in sri lanka all because of what ayakema was doing um, 
really amazing person. Anyone who studied with her, one of the first things they'll talk about is her clarity. When she gave a talk, it was very clear what was going on. Uh, the clarity was, was quite remarkable. And she taught uh, quite a variety of things. She's known for teaching the jhanas, and that's where I learned my jhanas. Uh, it was also uh, quite, quite a lot of her teaching was insight practices uh, for elements, working with Vedana, things like that. But she also taught metta in a different way than the way it's usually taught. Usually it's taught using uh, phrases, may I be happy, may I be healthy, etc. But she was a very visual person, and so she came up with these meta visualizations. And so towards the end of this, I'll do a, a guided meta using one of her routines. Uh, which is a visualization and it turns out it works really well for people who are highly visual, whereas the phrases work really well for people that are highly uh, verbal. So it, it really broadened the, the reach of metta. She also said that everyone should start every meditation period with metta. Um, she never really said how long um, when she said that to me, when I started meditating, I spent 10 minutes doing metta because I really liked doing metta. And I think that was part of the reason that meditation worked for me. Um, when I'm teaching my students, I tell them, yeah, at least a minute of metta and preferably maybe a little longer. You could do 10 minutes, you could do half an hour or whatever you felt like. But it's really important to start with metta because one, it puts you in a good mood. And two, it generates some concentration. In 1994, she taught a retreat uh, outside of Santa Cruz, California. And when she had finished lecturing on the sutta that she was going into in detail, when she, when she taught a retreat, she'd take a sutta and she would just go into it in detail. A 10-day retreat she might use a sutta that you could read in two minutes, but she would, you know, go into great detail about everything that was said there and it would last 10 days. So for this particular retreat, it was a 17 day retreat and she spent 13 days teaching what eventually turned into the book, uh, Who is Myself? And uh, on the Potapada Sutta. And when she finished it, she said she was going to teach on the Metta Sutta. And so she gave three Dharma talks on the 15 conditions that the Buddha outlined at the beginning of the Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who's skilled in goodness and who seeks the path of peace. Let them be able, upright, etc. And so she went through the 15 conditions and discussed them in detail. Her Dharma heir was a monk named Jnana Bodhi, who was in his previous life a photographer. And so he videotaped that retreat. Now, when I saw they were going to do that, my reaction was, who's ever going to watch these videotapes? Well, it turns out that they were wonderful. And I taught a month long retreat 
every year for over 20 years using those videotapes. Ayakema would give the Dharma talks and I do the Q&A and the interviews. Uh, and so I've watched those tapes more than 20 times. And we had the three talks uh, that were on Metta. One of my longtime students, um, a woman named Diana Gold, who is an author and a prize-winning author in her own right, after she'd heard the talk several times, came to me and said, if I do a transcription of those three talks on Metta, will you turn it into a book? And I was like, uh, I guess so. Uh, so she did the transcriptions and now I had to turn it into a book. I already had a transcription of a talk that Ayakema had given on Metta. And so I pulled together those three transcriptions and the earlier transcription and 10 of her uh, guided Metta. And now we have the path to peace, which is, yeah. I, I said a long time ago to one of my uh, fellow teachers, you know, there's not really a good book on Sila. There needs to be a book on Sila. Well, now we have a good book on Sila. It's not preachy. It's not, you have to do this, you have to do that. It, it's a very engaging book, I think. And so it's this is a really excellent addition to the 21st century Buddhist canon. And so I really appreciate Shambhala for making it happen and so and the fact that it's out there. So I could do the guided metta now, but maybe first I should stop and see if there are questions or comments. I think it would be really interesting for people to hear um, kind of how metta fits in with both shamatha practice and insight practice because i'm not sure everyone has the full picture and and i know various teachers present things differently so i'd be curious to hear your your take on that how they all sort of fit together is there a succession that right. kind of one of the things that i came taught was the jhanas and one of the access methods she taught was using metta as an access method. So basically, you sit down and you start doing metta meditation, either using the visualizations that she taught or using the phrases, whichever you felt most comfortable with. I have found out that basically, if you do metta for about a half an hour, I mean, and it's going well, you're not getting distracted, you'll be at access concentration, sufficient concentration to enter the jhanas. <clears throat> it's, it's a very good access method because as I mentioned, it puts you in a good mood as well as generating concentration. It's also quite easy to move from metta into the first jhana. One of the tricks for getting to the first jhana is to stop doing whatever practice you were doing to generate the access concentration and turn your concentrated mind to a pleasant sensation. Well, almost anyone that does metta for half an hour is going to have a pleasant feeling in the heart center. And so you can just shift your attention from basically sending out love to the feeling in the heart center. And if you do nothing else, 
the feeling will grow and eventually take you into the first jhana. So it's a good start for any sort of sitting because it puts you in a good mood and gets you some concentration. It's a really good way to generate concentration for entering the jhanas. I didn't talk a lot about using metta as an insight practice, but it turns out that it's quite useful for that as well. On one of my stays at the Forest Refuge, I did 10 weeks of Brahma Vihara practice, uh, four weeks of metta and two weeks on each of the others. And I didn't get a lot of insight while doing the metta practice because, well, I was busy doing the metta practice. There were some insights there, but I did discover that if I kept my mindfulness really strong when I got up to go to the toilet, to eat, to go for my after lunch walk, that insights would show up there. So it's not thought of as an insight practice per se, but doing a great deal of metta will leave you in a state where insights are very available. So yeah, it's a really good all round practice. If they were to come to me and say, you are permitted to only do one practice, choose, I choose metta. I wouldn't even have to think about it. It's, it feels good to do it. It puts me in a really good space and it leaves me in a place where, yeah, insights are going to be more available than uh, if I'm not doing some sort of practice. Uh, it's, it's a really profound practice. In the suttas, well, the scholars are debating how far metta can take you. Uh, there are certainly some suttas that imply metta can only take you to rebirth in the Brahma realms, one of the heavens. Okay, uh, that's not what Buddhism is about. But there are other suttas that to me seem to indicate that it can take you all the way to the third stage of awakening. You do need to get insight into not self to get fully awakened. But it's certainly a very important part of the path. The second item in the Eightfold Path is right intention. And the Buddha asked, what, O monks, is right intention? Intentions of renunciation, intentions of non-ill will, intentions of harmlessness. So we could say intentions of letting go of love and compassion. So yeah, metta is it should be at the root of, well, all of your actions. Think about the, what the world would be like if everybody's intentions were ones of letting go love and compassion. I want to live on that planet. That would be a really nice place. So yeah, metta is a powerful practice. And uh, it's a good warm-up exercise, and yet it also will take you into some very deep states and leave you set up for some very deep insights into the nature of reality as well. Thanks, Lee. And just a quick follow-up question. When you talk about that good feeling with metta, is that is that piti, joy? Is that the, that factor? I would say it's more closely related to sukha than piti. The okay. sukha is usually translated as 
happiness, or I translate it as joy. I want to use glee to translate piti and say uh, joy for sukha. Uh, so joy, happiness for sukha. Really, the difference between sukha and metta is not in the feeling, but what you're doing with the feeling. If you send the feeling out, it's metta. If you just enjoy the feeling, you're not sending it to yourself or to anyone else, then it's sukha. But the flavor is the same. So you're already getting a component of the first and second and third jhana by doing metta practice. And it's just a matter of getting the concentration to make it into the jhana. Great. Perfect. Thank you, Lee. Lee, you know, different teachers uh, teach about the relation of jhana and vipassana practice in different ways. You know, some people say that you really need to master the jhanas and then exit the jhana and start vipassana practice. Other teachers say it's not such a bifurcated process and that it's uh, jhana and vipassana are kind of two sides of the same coin. And I'm wondering if uh, you could just talk a little bit about how Ayakema taught that distinction between jhana and vipassana. Yeah, she was very much of the opinion that when you're in the jhana, you are concentrated enough that you have zero bandwidth left over to do vipassana. In other words, everything that you are aware of is the jhana and to do insight at that time just really isn't possible. Um, you, you're, you're fully engaged in this one pointed focus on the factors of the jhana. And so you need to exit the jhana uh, to come out and start doing your insight practice. She based this on what was her favorite sutta, um, which is the second one of the long discourses, the Samanyapala Sutta. And uh, actually, Shambhala published a book on her teaching that uh, called Visible Here and Now. And in that sutta, the four jhanas are given. And then it says, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one directs it, inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body, having material form, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, subject to rubbing, pressing, dissolution, and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. Now, to see that your body is material form, the four elements, born of mother and father, dependent on what you eat, impermanent, subject to rubbing, pressing. You can't do that when you're in a jhana. I'm sorry. When you're in a jhana, all that's happening is the jhana. And so I was very much of the opinion you step out of the jhana and start doing an insight practice. Now, the stepping out of the jhana is not something you do. You just start doing your insight practice. You're, say, in the fourth jhana, and you're going to do a body scan, which is one way to investigate the body, and was also a practice she taught. So you just put your attention on the top of your head and start your body scan. The fourth jhana just sort of fades away while you're doing it, but it's like sharpening a knife. You know, you sharpen. You can't cut while you're sharpening. But 
Yeah, when you stop sharpening, okay, you start cutting and it gets dull. Then you sharpen it again. Same thing with your mind. You sharpen it with the jhanas. You do your insight practice. Eventually it gets dull. You sit down again, do the jhanas again, get sharp again, do your insight practice again. Same thing. So her teaching of it was first concentrate your mind, then investigate reality. Thank you. Right. So maybe I should do a guided metta. The one I want to do is actually uh, transcribed in the book Path to Peace. And I think this was Ayakema's favorite metta. I say this because uh, anytime she was, say, doing a talk for well, let's say uh, an extraordinary group, like uh, at Green Gulch Zen Center. This was the method that she pulled out at the end of her talk to use. And, uh, well, let's just say she was an avid gardener, so it would make sense that this would be her favorite one. So, in order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for just a moment. Now look into your heart and you will notice that there's a very large flower garden in the center of your heart. A flower garden full of the most amazing varieties of beautiful flowers. Now imagine that you go for a stroll through the flower garden of your heart, enjoying its beauty its visual beauty, as well as its olfactory beauty. Now think of someone you really care about and pick that person a very nice bouquet of flowers from the flower garden of your heart and present it to them and see the joy on their face. Think of other people you're close to. Bring them to mind one by one and for each of them. Pick a nice bouquet of flowers from the garden of your heart and present it to them.
Think of your acquaintances, your neighbors, people you see in the stores that you frequent. Bring these people to mind one by one and pre present them also with a nice bouquet of flowers from the garden of your heart. Think of someone you find difficult and pick a nice bouquet of flowers for the difficult person as well and present it to them nicely. And of course you want to pick flowers for everyone on this call, all of your coworkers. It's a big flower garden. New flowers keep sprouting whenever you pick one. And it gets even larger. You can pick lots of bouquets. Give to everybody that you work with. Now start picking flowers for everybody in your neighborhood. For everyone in your city. It's a big flower garden. You can pick flowers for everyone in the whole state you're living in. There's actually enough flowers in your flower garden that you could give a bouquet to everyone in North America. When you look again into your heart, you'll notice how much larger the flower garden has grown. You can give flowers to everybody on this planet.
Now put your attention back on yourself, back in the flower garden of your heart, and notice how huge it's become. It's a funny thing about love. The more you give it away, the more you got. So I hope that this little half hour of Dharma has been useful to you and uh, really want to express my deep appreciation for Shambhala and all the absolutely fantastic books that you've published over the years. This, this organization is a Dharma jewel, so thank you for being this organization. You know, really, I feel honored to be able to share this with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lee. It's been an honor to have you with us. And I know for myself, like I just got so much out of this. So thank you so much. And now a short clip from the audiobook edition of The Path of Peace, A Buddhist Guide to Cultivating Loving Kindness from Ayakema. Chapter 4. Not Proud The next condition is to be not proud. We say pride goes before a fall. That tells it all, actually. People are proud about many absurd things. They're proud about their belongings, their family status, their family background, their education. Sometimes they're very proud of their thinking ability. They're smarter than anybody else. Of course, they'll have more trouble with the gaining of the skill of peacefulness because they're thinking, but they're proud of that. Others are proud, rightly or wrongly, that they like people and are always friendly with them. People don't even know they're proud of that. Pride manifests when one says, for instance, I always do this or I can always do that. If one thinks that, one doesn't have to say it. There's pride in it. Now, pride can take the reverse order. We can be proud of our negatives, too. Of course it's absurd, but people do that. Why do we have that absurd notion of being proud of our negatives? Because it's a support system for this ego delusion. Maybe I'm not great, but I'm terrible, so at least I'm something. Pride shows itself when we have a notion that we are something special, different, or something that we can put our finger on. None of us are anything that we can put our finger on. We are in total flux, so that's ill-placed. But pride is something that people have as an underlying support system, and if we become aware of that, we can, of course, let go. But it is difficult to be aware of it. There's a story from the Buddha's time about a Brahmin who was called Pride Stiff. That was his nickname, and it's quite an apt nickname, because we can say pride makes one stiff. One doesn't like to let go, so one becomes stiff. 
This chap was known for never prostrating to any spiritual teacher, not even to the Brahminical gods that were so prominent in his culture, and that's why he got that nickname. So the story says that one day he came to listen to a discourse of the Buddha, and when the discourse was finished, he went and prostrated himself in front of the Buddha. And the whole assembly was absolutely astounded. They're all watching this. They'd never seen this Brahmin do that. And after Pride Stiff, his real name was never mentioned, had prostrated, he said to the Buddha that he was most impressed with the discourse, and he believed that the Buddha was speaking the truth, but that he had a reputation to uphold. And would the Buddha accept that if he met him on the street, instead of prostrating to him and greeting him with reverence, he would lift his hat? And the Buddha said, yes, that would be quite all right. And they remained on that friendly footing, and he retained his nickname. We can see that the stiffness was also something which showed in his body, because he was never able to get down on the ground to prostrate before. It's just that he was so impressed with the Buddha that he finally managed that. We also say, proud as a peacock. Have you watched a peacock? Well, we do have peacocks in our culture, don't we? And one can see it in their walk, one can see it in their dress, and in their whole demeanour. And it's said that a peacock, while this may not be an actual fact, but it is said that a peacock is a rebirth of someone who was only concerned with the outer trappings for the body. And now, of course, he's got it all. He's got the most wonderful beauty but the most awful voice. So we do know that pride is not desirable. We actually have that in our culture, embedded in those sayings. Pride goes before a fall, proud as a peacock. We do know it. But are we aware what goes on within us deep down? To find out is not that easy. It takes meditation. And when we do find such pride... We can feel that it is most unpleasant. It doesn't feel good. Therefore, it's then obvious we want to get rid of it, no question. As long as we don't know about it, of course, we can live with it. That within our daily life it creates very often feelings and reactions which are resentful, disgruntled, restless. But taking it in one's stride, that's the way one feels. When we get into situations such as a course like this, it becomes so strong and obvious that one does make a resolution to get rid of it. But in daily life, we are often of the opinion that that's the way it is. Well, it is, but it doesn't have to be. It can change dramatically. <laughs>